I'm not sure how I'm going to go this morning because um, I've been quite unwell uh, during, during the week. On Monday, I was unable to get out of bed. I've had one of these rotten viruses. And um, so during the week, I've been working on my, working on my sermon. And I found myself, um, as I'm, you know, when you're unwell, you're sort of quite lethargic. Working on my sermon, I'd find myself falling asleep. And so I get, I'm a bit worried this morning that if I'm the person who's been preparing the sermon and going to preach it, has fallen asleep during the sermon. I'm just hope, hoping that you will uh, stay awake through it. Anyway, I'm one of those uh, folks that tends to be uh, prone to doing lots of really stupid things. Do we have anybody else like that here? Good, I'm in good company. I've got a list, a long list of very embarrassing moments, and I've sh- shared some of those stories with you before, such as the time, just in case you might have forgotten or you're new here and haven't heard the story before. But when I was younger, I was 17, 18, Great, great image I'm about to present to you, but I had a pair of tight, skin-tight black plastic pants. And um, I was living in England at the time, and it was a very, it was the middle of winter, it was a cold night, I was going out to have a little bit of fun, and um, I decided to stand in front of the fire to warm myself up. And uh, you can guess what happened, my pants melted. And uh, as the night wore on, um, my pants completely disintegrated. Uh, They were black, and I had a pair of bright yellow underpants on. (laughs) So I wasn't too embarrassed, because I was kind of having out with my friends and having fun. The embarrassing moment was the next morning when I wasn't quite as as, uh, inebriated as I was the night before. And then I had to get from where I was staying to the other part, to where I actually lived the next morning. Um, I also sat in the wrong wedding for um, half an hour. (laughs) Seeing this wedding, and I'm sitting there, sitting there, sitting there, thinking, I don't think this is the wedding I'm supposed to be at. But it took me half an hour to figure that out. I'm not sure if I shared this story before, but I had had a meeting with a pastor, and... um, I sat down, well, sorry, before I went in to, uh, to have this meeting, I quickly ate my, my lunch, which was a sausage sandwich. And what happened was that there was a hunk of sausage, it never happened to me before, and it's never happened to me since, but there was like this large piece of sausage got stuck and caught up in my uh, nasal cavity. And I could, yeah, how the heck did that happen? I don't know. It was there, and I couldn't get it out. And I'm snorting, and I'm... <laughs> doing everything that I possibly can to try and dislodge dislodge this hunk of sausage, and it won't come out. Anyway, I'm sitting having this conversation with this pastor, and my worst fear happened. (laughs) It didn't drop out of my nose, but what it did do is it dropped down into my mouth. And you can imagine that it's... And... um, I'm sure this guy was sitting there thinking, I had to then chew this lump of sausage. (laughs) And then pick up the courage to then swallow it. And I'm sure that guy is looking at me thinking, where did he get that sausage from? Where did it come from? This guy is amazing. He's a, I want him on my ministry team because he he can cause a sausage to appear from nowhere. 
I've got this long list of stupid failures and things that I've done, and I've also tragically got a, also got a long list of, um, of sins as well. They're not as funny. They're in fact, very sad. And I was chatting to Louise last night and saying, well, what sin can I tell people about? <laughs> I'm actually going to tell you that I think, for me, what is, I, honestly, is the worst sin that I've ever committed, I think. Um, it makes me sound like I used to drink a lot before I became a Christian. Oh, I did. Uh, I was about 17 and I had been out drinking way too much. And I came home and I was so drunk, I went to bed and I, I had to throw up. And so I couldn't, I didn't have the energy or the will uh, to get up and go to the bathroom to vomit. I just rolled over and was sick on the floor. The next morning, this is what to me is just probably a glimpse of how awful I was as a person before I met Christ. I looked at the vomit on the floor and I thought to myself, I'll leave that for mum to clean up. I'll leave that for mum to clean up. And I just think back of how selfish, how selfish a person I was to live my life like that, that thinking people would just come along and clean up my mess, that my mess was somebody else's problem. I know it's really gross, but I want to share that with you because I still to this day, my mum can't remember it, but I, it's indelibly printed in my mind of just how incredibly selfish I was, that I would leave somebody else to clean up my mess. Stupid thing. I'm not alone. Um, we all have our list of stupid things, don't we? And we all have our list of sins, don't we? Some of us just happen to be a little bit more open about it. Um, and because of our propensity uh, towards stupidity and towards sinfulness, it's easy for us to start thinking that I should be ashamed of, um, of who I am. Shame is the... Um, is the core belief that who I am is fundamentally um, uh, defective or flawed. As we talked about last week, um, the world in which we live, um, uh, it's, it's impossible for us not to be exposed to um, toxic substances, isn't it? And a, to a, tox a toxin is a substance which has the potential to damage our health. And um, depending on the nature of, um, of those toxins and our sensitivity to them, those toxic substances build up in our bodies, they build up in our, in our systems, and have a detrimental effect upon our physical health and well-being. And when that happens, we need to detox. We need to cleanse our system of those, of those toxins. But as I pointed out last week, just as, as dangerous and as difficult to avoid as the toxins that affect us uh, physically are emotional toxins. And emotional toxins are the things that have a damaging impact upon our soul. Our soul is the, the inner part of who we are. And last week I talked about the toxin of betrayal. 
And just as, as uh, we need to detox our body from har har um, harmful, toxic substances by going on a, a, a liver cleansing diet or perhaps just, just fasting and, and just drinking uh, lots of water, we also need to ensure that we detox our inner lives by having a soul cleanse to rid ourselves of toxic emotions. Are you with me this morning? Yes. Okay. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to focus on what I believe is the most toxic emotion of all, and that is shame. Um, shame researcher by the name of Gershon Kaufman writes, Shame is the most disturbing experience individuals ever have about themselves. No other emotion feels more deeply disturbing because in the moment of shame, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the self feels wounded from within. An Old Testament scholar by the name of David Atkinson says, Shame is a sense of a knees with yourself at the heart of your being. What I've done is I've come to see shame as a voice. I've come to see shame as a voice. It's an inner voice that says things to us such as, I'm not smart enough, I'm not pretty enough, I'm not good enough, or I don't get recognised enough. Or I'm not as good as my older brother or younger brother or young older brother or younger sister. Or I'm, I'm not as, as talented as this person or that person. Or I'm not, I mustn't be a good person because I don't have very many followers on my, in, in my, on my Instagram account or my Facebook account. Or... Um, you know, I must not be very good because there's a church down the road that has a bigger congregation than, than, than we, we've got, so there must be something wrong with me. And I'm not worthy. The voice comes, I'm a failure. And the voice comes, I don't deserve this or that or the other. And these are the soundtracks of shame. And an emotional detox involves silencing or cleansing our soul of the soundtrack or the voice of shame. Now, who here is familiar with uh, a lady by the name of Brené Brown? Only, only a handful. Well, she's going to get a few more uh, uh, likes on YouTube after today. Um, this lady, Brené Brown, um, spent six years doing a, a doct doctoral research project uh, examining the subject of shame. And her, uh, her TED Talks have become um, an internet phenomena, and her books have become bestsellers. Can I say, do yourself a favour and go online and listen to Brené Brown's teaching on vulnerability and shame. It is so, such, such good material. And she makes the following observations. She says that the world in which we live, um, shame is an epidemic and is profoundly impacting on how we do life and how we relate to others. She also said through her research that shame is a universal and fundamental human condition. 
If you're sitting here this morning and saying, well, I don't have a pro- I've never had a problem with shame, can I tell you that her research identified that only people with sociopathic personalities never, have never felt shame. So you need to be worried if you're sitting here this morning and saying, well, I've never felt shame in my life. Well, according to her research, it's probably because you're a sociopath. It's comforting. It's comforting. It's good to know. Also, she says that shame is the belief that I am not enough. I will never be enough. I'm lacking. I'm deficient. And I need to be someone other than who I am. And then she said that shame is based on this fear of disconnection. It's the belief that if people knew what I was really like, they would withdraw from me. They wouldn't want anything to do with me. And she says this thing of, of shame is an epidemic. It is ruining uh, people's lives and it's ruining relationships. And as she did her, she actually, this is true, she actually had a breakdown in the midst of her doing this research because she realized that um, within her own life, um, the thing that she discovered through her research is the thing that breaks um, the power of shame is something that she called vulnerability. And there was one thing that she wasn't, and that was vulnerable. And so it unraveled her because she realized that her life, her own life was gripped by shame and that the way out of shame was vulnerability and that was the one thing that she was not. She said that... Um, that in her, the, what she discovered through her research, that the antidote to shame is this thing called vulnerability. And she said that for connection or relationships to flourish, we have to be, be vulnerable. We have to let ourselves be seen and known. And we need at least one person in our world who knows us as we really are, who knows about not just our strengths, but also our struggles. And yet knowing us for who we are does not reject us. What she did was she discovered there were four reoccurring characteristics of those who demonstrated a strong sense of vulnerability. And therefore their lives weren't governed by shame and they were able to connect well with other people. And these are the four things. She says that people who, who, are, who are vulnerable who don't struggle with shame and who are able to connect well relationally with others, first of all, they have courage. Now, this word courage comes from the Latin word uh, cur, meaning heart. And the original, when she talks about courage, what she is referring to is the original meaning of, of this word courage, which is to tell the story of who we are with our whole heart. To tell, our story, to tell our story of who we are with our whole heart. And that, that what this practically means is we have the courage to reveal our imperfections, that we're able to be transparent about our weaknesses. I told you my embarrassing moments, and then I told you what I still think is my worst sin, hopefully to model something to you and say, hey, Have courage to tell the story, tell your story with your heart.
The second thing that people who are vulnerable and therefore um, don't struggle with shame and, and are able to build good relationships, um, uh, this the second attribute is one of compassion. As it turns out, she discovered that you cannot uh, practice authentic compassion toward others unless you are first kind to yourself. kind of reminds me of something that Jesus said, that we are to love others as we love ourselves. It is an echo of the teaching of Jesus. We love because he first loved us. Number three is um, authenticity. And so this is, the, is really the challenging part of overcoming shame. You have to be willing to let go of who we think or others think we should be in order to be who we really are. We have to let go of what we think or what we, we or others think we should be in order to um, be who we really are. And number four, the vulnerable believe that being vulnerable is an asset. It is actually a sign, not of weakness, but of bravery, and it is a beautiful thing. And because of this, um, the vulnerable are able to initiate um, open, intimate, and um, uneasily communication with others. They're able to say to people very easily, I love you, or I am sorry when they are wrong. I do want to encourage you to um, YouTube uh, Brené Brown's um, TED Talks or to read her books because I found her material personally to be incredibly insightful and helpful. But what is fascinating is her research, um, unsurprisingly, affirms what the Bible has to say about shame. And this is what the Bible has to say about shame. It identifies shame as being an ancient emotional wound that can be traced back all the way back to the book of Genesis, to the very beginning of the book of beginnings. And in Genesis chapter 2, verse 25, we find a description of humanity in our unbroken state. And it says there that now the man and wife were both naked but felt no shame. It's a really interesting kind of thing to say that, that in our unbrokenness, we felt no shame. It doesn't mention fear or any other emotion. It just it talks about shame. And so here is Adam and Eve um, in, in a place of complete security with one another. They were seen for who they were, and yet they were unashamed. And as we know the story, uh, things go awry and then this disconnection, this rupture between God and humanity occurs. And as a consequence, this is what it says in chapter 3. It says, at, them, at that moment, um, their eyes were opened, that's Adam and Eve's eyes were opened, and they suddenly felt shame at their nakedness. And what did they do? They sewed fig leaves together to cover themselves. When the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. 
So they hid from the Lord God among the trees. Then the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? And he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. So in this little scenario that happens right back in the book of the beginning of the book of beginnings, we get this little um, synopsis of what shame is like. And it tells us that shame is the consequence of doing wrong and the consequence of our disconnection from God. And shame is the, that ancient wounding that we still carry with us today that reminds us of our origins, of this disconnection, of this rupture that has occurred because of our disobedience uh, before God. It also tells us that, that, um, that uh, um, shame is something we feel. It says they suddenly felt shame. Shame is, is, is an, our emotional response to disconnection. We also discover that shame is something that we try to avoid by doing what? Covering. Covering. We cover up and we hide. And we can use all kinds, we don't use fig leaves today, we use all kinds of things to try and cover our shame. So for some of us, we, we want a, a bigger house or a flasher car or this or that or the other to somehow cover. <coughs> Nothing wrong with those things, but sometimes we utilize those things as a modern day fig leaf to try and hide what is really going on, the angst, this internal, internal angst that is going on within us. And then there was fear of being found out for who um, um, they were and what they have done. And that's true for us. We're so afraid that people will actually find out who we are and what we've done because if, they, if anybody really knew what I was really like, then disconnection would occur. Kind of all that stuff bears witness, what we just read about there bears witness to the research that she wasted six years of her life. She could have just read Genesis chapter 2 and chapter 3 and she could have saved herself a breakdown in the process. So because shame is the universal and fundamental human condition, one of the central um, themes or threads of the Bible is how God has acted in Christ to lift shame from us. And there's a story, a story of the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4. And I'd love to just do a sermon on John chapter 4 and this event that occurs with uh, this Samaritan woman. Because in it, it outlines how Jesus addresses shame. It is one of the most beautiful passages in the Bible. I'm going to restrain myself, and I'm not going to go into the background, into the background of the story. I'm just going to jump straight into it. Okay. So it says in verse uh, 5 of chapter 4, it says, Jesus came to the Samaritan village of Sychar, near from that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. And Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired from the long walk, sat wearily beside the well about noontime. Soon a Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Please give me a drink. He was alone at the time because his disciples had gone into the village to buy some food. And the woman was surprised, for Jews refused to have anything to do with Samaritans. 
And I'm not going to tell you why, but it's so it's very interesting. And she said to Jesus, you are a Jew and I am a Samaritan woman. Why are you asking me for a drink? Now, there are a couple of key questions that I just want to kind of throw out. Why does this, this woman have to go to this particular well? It's, it's identified as being Jacob's well. Why does she have to go to that well? And why does, she, why does it say, why does the Bible say that she went at this particular time of day, at midday? I'm kind of going to answer those questions. Why did she go to that well? And why at that particular time of day? Well, Bible scholars tell us that um, she would have had to have passed uh, several other wells in her village in order to get to this well, which is outside of the city walls by about half a mile. Now, that's quite a reasonable distance if you're carrying water. Why does she bypass a number of other wells that would have been closer to her home? Why does she go out of the village in which she lives and to go to this what's called Jacob's well. Why, why does she go to draw water from there? Well, we can, we can, there might be some, but the reason I want to propose to you this morning is Jacob's well had spiritual significance to both Jews and Samaritans. It, had, it was a, a place of, of spiritual importance. And there was something in this woman's heart that was she was looking for spiritual answers. Perhaps she was going there to pray or to reflect. But there is a spiritual search going on. She's on a journey. And she's kind of going the extra mile to try and find an answer to her problem. And when she gets to the well, she's expecting to be there all by herself. But when she arrives there, she finds Jesus, who is a Jew, and he's a man. And we don't have time to go into the man bit, but as the scripture points out, um, Jews and Samaritans do not get on well together. There are very clear, um, there are are ethnic, there are uh, religious and there are gender differences, and if you unpack the story a little bit, you'll find that there are really major moral um, differences uh, between this lady and Jesus. And it would have been, I reckon, quite discomforting for her to be in that place. Yet despite their, their racial differences, their religious differences, their gender differences, and their moral differences, Jesus does something That is just so incredibly beautiful. He's trying to put this woman at ease. He's trying to make her comfortable. And what he does is he engages her by asking her for help. The Son of God has a need that this woman can meet. And he humbles himself. And he invites her to provide for him. Just so beautiful. Particularly when you discover who she is and why she's there at this particular time of day. They begin to engage in some conversation and they have a theological um, debate. And she has a go at, at Judaism and kind of Jesus hits back and then she has another shot and then he hits back at her. And they have this, this kind of deep theological um, um, uh, debate They're kind of playing theological ping pong. You know, some people who get caught up 
in religious arguments are actually trying to avoid things of the heart. See, true religion is not about debating. Some of us want to debate over this word and what did that mean and how come he uses that translation of the Bible and he doesn't use this translation of the Bible. Bam, 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 bam. No, that's not... My goodness me, if our Christianity has fallen to that level, we've missed the point. It's about here and how what's in here then expresses itself and how we live out there. And so we get into all kinds of stuff, theological stuff, because it, it avoids us having to deal with the stuff that's really in here. That transform, a transformed heart then leads to a transformed life. And so this debate's going on. She wants to keep it at that level because she's guarding her heart because she's a hurt woman. And so what Jesus does gently leads the conversation. And in verse 16, he says, go and get your husband. And this was the response. Well, I don't have a husband. Technically. And Jesus says, oh, you're right. Technically. You don't have a husband, for you have had five husbands. And the bloke you're shacked up with at the moment, well, you're not married to that, to that man. You're living with him. You're in a de facto relationship. You, you spoke the truth. Good on you. And the woman, in response, says something incredibly profound. She says, Sir, you must be a prophet. What Jesus was doing, he was uncovering why this woman happened to be at the well at midday. Because no one went to draw water from the well at midday. It was you're in the Middle East. It's hot. So you would go and draw water from the well in the early hours of the morning while it was cool or later at night when it was cool. But you never went. You never went in the middle of the day to draw water. It just wasn't done. And yet she was there at lunchtime, all alone, because she was a morally loose woman. And she was avoiding the stigma of all of the other women in the village looking at her and commenting about her lifestyle and the way that she was living and the things that she had done. She'd moved from one marriage to... She was like the Elizabeth Taylor of, uh, of Palestine. I don't know what the equivalent of today is. She gives give away my age. But she's gone from one relation to another relation to another. another. And, I mean, in that culture, in that day, it was just not done. And so she would have been an object of scorn. And she's at the well at midday in order to avoid the, the looks and the comments of all of the women, of the other women in the village, because she's ashamed of what she, how she has lived out of life. And what Jesus does, he is in the process of breaking the cycle of shame. And he says to her, I know you. Ah, you can't hide from me. I know everything about you. I know your story. 
I know who you've been with. I know who you're with. And it's okay. Let's just bring it out into the open. Let's not kind of try and mask all of this stuff with theological discussions and, um, you know, bounce it. Let's just bring it. Let's bring the darkest secret, the thing that you're trying to get away from. Let's bring that out onto the table and let's have a look at it, darling. Shall we do that? What's really fascinating, what I find really fascinating about this story is that in Samaritan theology, Samaritan theology says that there would be no prophets after Moses until the Messiah came. There would be no prophets after Moses until the Messiah came. That was her theological understanding. That was her that was her mindset. So when she says to Jesus, Sir, oh, you must be a prophet, what she is actually saying is, You might be the Messiah. You might be the one that we've been waiting for, the one who was to come, the one who was going to put all broken things right, the one who is going to repair and restore all those things that are broken. The Saviour, the Messiah, who would rescue us from sin and shame and restore our lives. And so the Messiah came to this woman like he comes to us and he wants us to be open and real about the things that we would like to keep hidden, that we would prefer to pretend that didn't exist, that we would like to sweep under the carpet. But the Messiah wants to kind of bring them out, expose them, not to hurt us, but to heal us. Would the helpers like to come and um, distribute communion for us? It's all right. At the cross, Jesus did something remarkable. At the cross, Jesus absorbed all the sin and the shame of the world upon himself. Every stupid and every shameful thing that you or I have ever done or will do have been born by Christ already on the cross. Your list of stupid things and your list of sinful things, the shame that you carry, that was nailed to the cross of Christ. It has all been placed on him once and for all. And Jesus took the toxicity of our shame and eradicated it once and for all. He connected us with God, the Father, in an unbreakable connection called covenant. And we have been bound together with God through Christ. You are so loved 
that there is nothing that you could possibly do, nothing so stupid and nothing so sinful and nothing so shameful that is able to separate you from the love of God that has been expressed in Jesus Christ. And because of this, we can have courage to tell God our story with our whole heart. God already knows our imperfections and we can go to him and disclose the very secrets of our lives. Because of this, we can be compassionate towards ourselves. We can be kind to us because God has been kind to us. In Titus chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, it says, But when the kindness of and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. Because of the cross, we can be authentic we can let go of who we or others think we should be in order to be who we really are, which is we are children of God. We are loved. We, we are adopted. We, we are chosen. We are saints. This is our true identity. This is God. This is God. This is who God says we are. And then finally, we can be vulnerable. We can confidently initiate open and intimate and honest communication with God and say whatever needs to be said in prayer. You're secure. You can stand metaphorically naked before God and say, God, here I am. And just like the woman of the well, Jesus knows all of the stuff. You don't have to hide. It does not change God's posture of love towards us. In Isaiah 53, it says, It was our pains he carried, our disfigurements, all the things wrong with us. We thought he brought it on himself, that God was punishing him for his own failures. But it was our sins that did that to him. He took the punishment and that made us whole. Through his bruises, we get healed. And God has piled all our sins, everything we've ever done wrong, on him. He was beaten, he was tortured, but he didn't say a word. Like a lamb taken to be slaughtered and like a sheep being sheared, he took it all in silence. Justice miscarried and he was led off and did anyone really know what was happening? He died without a thought for his own welfare, beaten, uh, bloody for the sins of my people. And they buried him with the wicked, threw him in a grave with a rich man. And even though he had never heard a soul or said any one word, that wasn't true. Still, it's what God had in mind all along, to crush him with pain. The plan was that he give himself as an offering for sin, so that he'd see life come from it. Life Life and more life. And God's plan will deeply prosper through him. Out of that terrible tra travail of soul, he'll see that it's worth it and be glad that he did it. Through what he experienced, my righteous one, my servant, will make many righteous ones. 
as he himself carries the burdens of their sins. Therefore, I reward him extravagantly, the best of everything, the highest honours, because he looked death in the face and didn't flinch, because he embraced the company of the lowest. He took on his own shoulders the sin of the many, and he took up the cause of all the black sheep. My goodness me, how good is that? Why don't we, if you haven't eaten the bread, why don't you um, take that now? And let us drink together uh, this morning in recognition that every one of our stupid things, every one of our sinful things, the list has been nailed. We can live and placed upon Christ. And as a consequence of that, we can live free from shame.